I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Thank you so much for coming along to Twice Upon a Time. Lisa Evans. Hooray. Um, <laughs> let me just let me just attend to your credits before we before we get started, because they are many and wondrous. Uh, television director, producer, BAFTA winner. Um, novelist, children's author, author, amongst other things, of Old Baggage, Their Finest Hour and a Half, V for Victory, Crooked Heart. Um, And if if there's a tone to my voice when I say that, Lisa, it's because I absolutely love them. But don't let that influence anything you say (laughs) afterwards. And um, latterly, uh, a children's book called Wished. That's right. Out this year. And what have you chosen for us? What have you gone back to? I have chosen Five Children and It by E. Nesbitt. How old were you when you first read it? I was trying to remember. I can divide my childhood quite neatly because we moved when I was nine. So this was definitely the first half of my childhood when we lived in a village in Surrey. So I must have been about eight when I read it. And then I I probably dipped into it. That's what I would tend to do. I would devour a book and then dip into my favourite bits for years afterwards. And how long do you think the gap's been before your last dip and this? Oh, gosh. Oh, now you're asking. It must be about 45 years or more. Yes, a long, long time. Probably, yeah, coming up to 50 years since I last read it. Um, how did you feel going back to it? Do you know, it was such an easy read. She's, her authorial voice is so satisfying and so modern in many ways. Uh, I, it was just a sheer pleasure. I just uh, ripped through it in about a day. Can you give me a, a brief summary of the plot? Right, Five Children Knit. Marvellous title, can I say. There is no... The, the, the it is not actually referred to as it in the book, so she's used it purely for the the joy of the title. And what what a title! You could you call an episode of Doctor Who Five Children in it. It's fantastic. But basically, it's four children in a family: um, boy, girl, boy, girl, Cyril, Anthea, Robert, and Jane, aged about hard to tell really between twelve and eight, I'd say. And they move to the country. There's no real setup. They move to the country. They've got a large-ish house with about three servants. Nearby, there's a sand pit. Day one, in the sand pit, they, they're digging around and they find a sand fairy, or Samiad, who is a brilliantly described sort of hairy, fat, uh, beetle-like figure with eyes on stalks uh, and quite grumpy. And the Samiad, can, it turns out, can grant them wishes. So over the course of about, it's hard to tell, two or three weeks, they get several wishes, most of which go wrong, and then they take a wish that the Samiad uh, has a nice long rest. And that's the end of the story. It, there's no real arc, uh, but each adventure in itself is very satisfying. It's very funny. It's very assured. It, and it's a, it's a classic for a very good reason. I read it when I was very little and hadn't dipped again until now, and I was astonished by how funny it is and how much 
of the adult voice she weaves in without ever putting you off as a child, because I loved it when I was little. But going back to it now, I found out so much more about her. Yes, it's very interesting in that, um, although I say it is a, you know, a, a modern voice in many ways, the ubiquitous narrator is not a common thing in, in literature nowadays, especially children's literature. It is a different feel to have an author popping in and out and making comments. But on the other hand, some of them are so deliciously funny. And a lot of my childhood was seeking out funny books and particular lines would stay with me forever. And they became the template on which all funny lines I wrote were based. There's one or two lines in this which have never left me and I can remember almost for the syllable. So she uses that authorial voice to do tremendous amounts of comedy. It's very impressive. And she's straight in with it too, isn't it? Because when, when, as you say, it plunges you straight into the action. They're going to this house. They're saying, are we nearly there like like children do forever? And then um, she goes into a fantastic diatribe about how awful living in London is (laughs) compared to living in the country, which which was astonishing because I I don't remember reading that sort of thing when I was a child, apart from I must have enjoyed it because I loved the story and I remember that. But it's really, you know, there's lots into it. You know, London has none of those nice things children play with without hurting them things or themselves. And London is all straight lines, you know. I'm cutting that very short. It goes on for a couple of pages, this real diatribe. Yes, and she actually, um, she brings that back in several of her novels. I remember in... in um, the story of the amulet, there's a bit where they're sprung into the future. And the comparison with the London of, of now, when she was writing, is very stark and, and quite chastening because the London she wrote about was a London of peace supers, of tremendous visible poverty, because you know, she was a socialist herself, so she wanted to point this up, and a, a London that was filthy and where there were many children who worked or were barefoot. It was, the contrast was extraordinary. And where she lived, because, you know, for all this countryside fabulousness, I'm sure we'll get on to her and her extraordinary life later, but she didn't end up living there until quite late on. I have to admit to you, Janet, that I don't know very much about Inez Bitter. You're going to have to educate me largely on this. I know bits and bobs, but nothing very... Probably um, best um, to brace yourself, then, I think. (laughs) That's the only thing I can say. Yes. A busy lady, I'd imagine. She was, yes, busy is is a good word for it. Um, (laughs) Yes, she was, and, uh, and I think... She certainly fits in with something that I think I'm discovering is that they do tend to have rackety old times away from the desk. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all. Um, where did you go to read? Did you squirrel your books away somewhere? I had my own room and read in bed or got up early, very early, often half past six or seven earlier than the whole of the rest of the house. And uh, I've got very strong memory of going downstairs, getting filling a bowl with cashew nuts right to the top. My mum my my mum had found something called the Nuts Company in the sixties <laughs> and uh, my addiction to cashew nuts started then. Filling a bowl with cashew nuts, coming back, putting on a fan heater directly in front of me and then just reading and eating cashew nuts for about an hour and a half before the rest of the household woke up. I could always read anywhere and anything. I always just read, read, read. I mean I lived in the sort of household where it didn't really occur to me until I was almost in my teens that that most households didn't read all the way through pudding. We weren't allowed to read from our main course, but you could pick up a book for pudding. That was <laughs> that was what you were allowed to do. So, you know, it was part of my life very early on. It must be quite with. a difficult habit to break. <laughs> yeah, I, I never did. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, very early memories, just sitting and finding books about magic or finding books that made me laugh. Those are my two keystones. Really. How much older are your sisters? Uh, seven years and ten years. Oh. So I read an awful lot of uh, their books, but also my sister, who's ten years older than me, was um, she censored my reading and wouldn't let me read in Blyton. Which was quite funny. This was the 60s. She was you know, a burgeoning sociology student and she disproved Lena Brighton, Blyton. So I never did read any, apart from the fact my middle sister somehow got hold of a copy of Claudine of St Clair's and I found it in her bookcase. It was like crack, Janet. I'd never read anything as marvellous in my entire life. And I read and reread Claudine of St Clair's, but that's literally the only Blyton. I've never read that one. Oh, well, I, I can't recommend it highly No, enough. I know. I feel like you're a sort of <laughs> I think she now. falls in the swimming pool at some <laughs> point. Yeah. For yes. me, I think it, it meant I went on reading whatever came to hand, which meant a huge variety in reading adult books very early on and finding books in my parents' um, bookshelves. I did that too, which meant yeah. that when I was in my early teens, I read an awful lot for some reason of sort of... Graphic retellings of actual Victorian murders. Oh, <laughs> I'm not sure why that was in my parents' library. I, I think the first adult books I read were, were all well. It's all very well, <laughs> but you probably don't know much about how quickly you're poisoned with laudanum. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Let's go back, actually, to the Samoyed, which is a fantastic creation. And the illustrations in this book um, by the fantastically named H.R. Miller. It's an extraordinary thing to have to illustrate because the Samoyed is in no way cuddly. No. Uh, He's not particularly pleasant. Um, He has an absolute terror of getting wet because sand fairies apparently if they get wet are, are likely to catch cold and then die and he yeah, tells so, them that very early on and one of his whiskers did get wet at some point in the last couple of millennia and don't you know don't we know about it Absolutely. he brings it up quite frequently he, shall i read out a description of him oh here? yeah please yeah. this is the first time they meet him the children stood round the hole in a ring looking at the creature they had found it was worth looking at Its eyes were on long horns, like a snail's eyes, and it could move them in and out like telescopes. It had ears like a bat's ears, and its tubby body was shaped like a spider's and covered with thick, soft fur. Its legs and arms were furry too, and it had hand and feet like a monkey's. The children never frightened of it, is the interesting thing. They take it very much for granted. Or want it as a pet. You know, their relationship with it is quite... Um, equal in a way, isn't yes. it? Yes, it's a grown-up, yeah, but uh, in in a pet's body, basically. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, and and he's also um, he's grumpy, straightforward. He's also um, fantastically vain. And if they praise him, he perks up no end and and will do all sorts of things for them. And towards the end, he's also rather pathetic. He's tired. He's a very, very old creature. Yes. And I've recently written a a book, Wished, which has got a very, very old cat in it. And reading this, and I didn't reread it until after I finished Wish, I do think maybe there was a little bit of the Samiad there. Well, it's yeah. it's a delicious conundrum, isn't it? That it's something that has the ability to grant you wishes, 
which would seem to be something fantastical and would be accompanied by a fantastical body. And of course it's not. It's this small, stout, rather grumpy thing that the least opportunity burrows back into the sand anyway, so they can't find him for days. This is the absolute antithesis of the fairy of the Christmas tree. You know, the the, the delicate uh, little being flitting around Tinkerbell. It's anti-Tinkerbell, basically. There's nothing sweet about the Samiad, you know. And with with the wishes, and, and it's really, it's a nice structure, this, a very satisfying structure that each of the chapters has a wish and what happens yeah. when you wish it. And and a lot of it, although I don't know if you agree, I don't think it's intended as a moral tale. However, the way that they use language becomes a lot more careful by the end of the book. That's right. And, and you know, she points out it how or we realise how often we all use the word wished. And in fact, halfway through the book, the, the one of the children extracts um, an agreement from the Samyad that they can wish anywhere. They don't just have to be in the sandpit with him. And that's disastrous yeah. because, of course, we all use I wish in, in conversation all the time. But um, what I, I do love the very first wish, they're, they're put into a sort of... Um, Uh, it's sprung upon them that they can get a wish. And um, so he... (laughs) I'm going to read out a bit, actually, because it's got one of my favourite all-time bits in it. Um, Their very first wish, uh, the girls come up with it. I wish we were as beautiful as the day, they ask, which is a completely useless wish and the sort of thing that would have been a Victorian moral book. And, um, And he blows himself up, as he does when he grants a wish, and then disappears. It scratched suddenly and fiercely with its hands and feet and disappeared in the sand. Then the children looked at each other and each child suddenly found itself alone with three perfect strangers, all radiantly beautiful. (laughs) Excuse me, said Anthea very politely to Jane, who now had enormous blue eyes and a cloud of russet hair. But have you seen two little boys and a little girl anywhere about? I was just going to ask you that, said Jane, and then Cyril cried... Why, it's you! I know the hole in your pinafore. You are Jane, aren't you? And then, and then, um, then he says, I say, am I as handsome as you are? And, and he says, if you're Cyril, I liked you much better as you were before. You look like the picture of the young chorister with your golden hair. You'll die young, I shouldn't wonder. And if that's Robert, he's like an Italian organ grinder. His hair's all black. And this is the line that I remembered from when I was... Nine. You two girls are like Christmas cards then. That's all silly Christmas cards, said Robert angrily, and Jane's hair is simply carrots. It was indeed of that Venetian tint so much admired by artists. And I think that may have been my first encounter with sort of arch sarcasm. Real sarcasm, yes. I thought that was so funny, and that lodged in my head and probably emerged in stories for years after um, I read it. Yeah. Very successfully, I venture. Um, <laughs> and also, there's, there's two caveats with the wishes. First of all, they uh, they only last till sundown. Yes, very happy. And this they, is obviously during the summer the holidays. It really worked out. Uh, the children discuss it endlessly. Yes. How does it work? And that's what children do. Yes. You know, yes. the rules. They Plus, discuss the rules. The servants... Yes haven't got the ability to see the consequences of the wishes. That's an early wish that they make, and it's a very convenient one because you don't have to worry about that. I don't know whether I mean this when you were little or now, but did you, when you are reading it, think about wishes you would have wished? Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, you know, I, I've just written a book called Wished, which is about wishes and precisely about what, what children now are sort of raised on the instant magic of screens would wish for. And, of course, some of them are unchanged. Some of them like money and also flying. Flying is, is an unchanging wish for all of us and it's, it's quite a theme in, in my book, Wished. And 
Yes, that's what I dream of. I'd be some kind of soaring bird, I think. It's mm. nice in the book when they get their wings. It's a lovely description of how heavy they suddenly feel on their back yes. when the wings are growing in one of the... That's right, episodes. and the illustration is marvellous because they've got these huge angel's wings and then the boys are in Norfolk suits yeah. and the girls have got, you know, slightly grubby pinafore dresses and they've all got boots, of course, and lace-up hats. boots. Those hats, actually, I quite like the boys' hats. Yes. They're, quite, they're quite now. Um, but, yes, they're always wearing hats and pinafores and, you know, perfectly dressed and have to mend anything the minute it gets a tear. Yes, but, that's right. But, yeah, wings as well. I think like a lot of writers of this sort of time I'm discovering, because I think children are concerned with it too, there's a lot about money and what you can do with money. And I think it's two things, isn't it? It's first of all that as a child you have really no agency with money. You know you want some, but even when you get it, as is proved in one of the chapters, you don't quite know what to do with it. But equally, it, it doesn't it doesn't have the the same value for you as it would do for an adult. And they have no idea that having servants, for a start, puts them into a bracket which, which separates them immediately from the great, great many of the people that they're going to meet. Yes. But they do, she, does, she does talk about money and what things cost all the time, and the children do too. They talk about money all the time, and they talk about food all the time. <laughs> there is no chapter where the children don't anxiously discuss how they're going to you know, get lunch, what it's going to be, how they're going to be back for lunch, how terrible it will be if they miss lunch, what's for dinner, on and on and on. There is, it is the central theme of the book in many ways, but, but money too. And of course, their, their wish, it's the first wish they really think about. And they wish, I can't remember what the precise wish is. Is it for uh, endless wealth? It's yes. For wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. Yes, that's right. And what they get is the entire sandpit fills with gold coins. And they're thrilled, but first of all, gold coins are really, really heavy, so it's quite difficult getting a stuffing enough in their pockets. But secondly, of course, no one will take the money because they don't believe it's real. And in the end, they get hauled up in front of the police. But fortunately, that all the money disappears at sunset. But for the rest of the book, there's lots of discussion about the money thing. They never get round to it for various reasons. But they're going to have fifty pounds in two shillings that, in florins. That was that's their plan, and then that goes up to hundred pounds in florins. But they never they never get it because they're too busy wrecking their plans by accidentally wishing other things. Robert's the only one with any hard cash, isn't he? Because he's he's going to buy rabbits, oh, and actually he has to use it. Rabbits, he has to use he? it differently later on. But the food and the money, and of course the fact that they don't have a structure for actual bedtime because conveniently their parents are not around you know yes, they are just in dispatched to look after yeah. grandmother aged uh, yeah, yeah sick yeah. relative yeah. and yeah and I can't even where is father father is definitely not present either I expect he's at the office isn't he done it that's <laughs> That's generally where fathers were in Victorian fiction. You just you just have to get them out of the way, don't you, as a, as a children's writer? I'm because they you are do. not part of the story. But it used to be that that was the main problem with writing children's books, getting your parents out of the way. But then, of course, mobile phones came along and produced a whole new problem. Because how do you how do you write a plot of any kind without a mobile phone? So that's that's there's now two real issues the, the chapters are all about their different wishes and I, I think reading it now some are more successful than others but I particularly like the, the, the one about the wanted baby they've got this little brother the lamb who, whose name is revealed a bit later oh on. yes he's Devereux isn't it Hilary yes. Devereux yes he's got lots he's, yes. he's Hilary Devereux and what's the other one um, yes definitely something Sinclair, that, that's, I think that's right yes but, but he's about 18 months too. Yeah, he's definitely he's just very speaking, portable. Isn't he? Yes. Yeah. 
just beginning to speak and they have to lug him around with them all day <laughs> mostly except when rather brilliantly um martha who's the sort of servant in charge of them uh takes him off to visit relatives and they're all very keen to point out to each other that that's when the baby is going to look at his best <laughs> because the servants yeah. like to take the babies off looking really good and possibly when one of the girls speculates to pretend it's their child <laughs> that <laughs> but that the baby uh, they they want um they, they say they you know the wishes i wish everybody wanted him and of course for the whole of this chapter everybody really does he's the adorable baby and they and can't get really enough quite of him frightening yeah because because he's he's kidnapped once and then the second time he's one they 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 bump into a band of gypsies which of course the trope was then that gypsies would want to steal babies but what's interesting is that the the gypsies wouldn't have been interested in the baby had it not been for this wish um, but they're all obsessed with him, and and they they won't let go of that obsession. It's quite scary. It is, yeah. yes. And, and one of them says, you know, gypsies, we don't steal babies, despite what you've probably been told when you're naughty. Um, and I don't, I don't want any because I've had enough of my own. But I've got none now. And there's obviously all of all of the gypsies' children have died. Yes. And she's, and that's. That's, I have to say, Inez, but that's a little glossed over later. You know, the fact that <laughs> for a moment it looked as though she might have a substitute baby. But I love the idea of this absolutely adored baby that the children suddenly see in a whole new light as being possibly what they want too. Yes. For the first time, it's, it, it ceases to be a burden. Now, having said that, Janet, only about three chapters later, they're so... They're so sick of the lamb once again that one of them wishes that he'd grow, he'd just grow up now. And of course, he, he does rather horribly. His I face changes first. I think that's my favourite chapter. Is it? Yes. Is it's it? So, it's so extreme. And again, like every, every other chapter, it's really thought through as to the consequences of what that would feel like. Mm. And he's, a, he's an absolute bounder. He's beastly to them. He's really dismissive. He just wants to go and spend money on wine and women, which is really what's going to And then they're imagining the sun going down and, and suddenly baby lamb sitting in one of those huge club chairs wailing for Anthea. That's right. But they, but they do say, once the sunset has arrived and, and he's restored, um, that they feel that that's, he was only like that because it was all so accelerated that he hadn't had the sort of growing up and you know bringing up in between by anyone chiefly them of yeah. course this is what they're hoping that he won't actually turn out to be as soppy and, and hopeless as it's very funny because when they see him first of all he's asleep against a tree and they're really worried of course that this grown man will actually you know still be thick and like lamb but he's not and the first thing he says to them is like oh what what home kids what yes. do you want yes. then tries to send them away yeah and and at the end of it, Martha, the uh, housekeeper servant, um, who obviously can't see the, produ- the product of the wish, carries him into the house, still as a fully formed adult male. Because yes. <laughs> yes. she thinks she's carrying a baby. It gets really complicated in a couple of the chapters. The, the, the castle one with the siege, where... She's having to explain how they can eat stuff. Oh, actually, that they... I marked that bit, actually. Did you? Good. Because <laughs> that was another authorial bit. Yes, it is very bizarre because basically um, they can't see stuff from their real life. But when they've got it in their hand or in their mouth, it exists. It is slightly complicated. But it is quite funny. They realise that although they can't see the food on the table, it's there. And uh, Cyril, first of all, tries to sort of moves his mouth around and f- finds a bit of bread. 
And um, the next moment, all the others were following his example and opening and shutting their mouths an inch or so from the bare-looking table. Robert captured a slice of mutton and... But I think I will draw a veil over the rest of this painful scene. That's another phrase I nicked multiple times at school. Um, It is enough to say that they all had enough mutton and that when Martha came to change the plates, she said she had never seen such a mess in all her born days. (laughs) Her voice is so extraordinary and distinctive and woven in and out of this book. After a while, I began to kind of look for it, Mm. which obviously I, I didn't when I first read it. I was too busy with the story. But there's a fantastic description of how children can all talk at once to each other and hear because, you know, they are, they're actually, you know, able to separate out the bits that they need of other people's conversation and still keep their own going. And and she says, you know, that um, lending ears was more common in Roman times, as we learn from Shakespeare. (laughs) She's some, I don't think any, anyone's ever been better at writing family conversations and arguments. They they really are superb and totally believable, and of course some of the some of the language feels, you know, old to our ears, but nevertheless the emotions within it and the the rhythm of it and the interruptions and the and the uh, back chat and the rudeness they're all so believable. And you see that in her other books as well. I mean, the Railway Children has some of those magnificent child arguments in it you could possibly imagine. They are they are it's perfect. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Did you move again after the move when you were nine? Uh, no, I just we just moved when I was nine, and it was it was a seminal moment in my life. And in fact, the, it is the reason why all my books for children are start nine year olds or ten year olds, and why I write for that age group because you know look, when you look back, it's very hard to be precise about times. I can't tell you exactly what I was thinking about at thirteen or at eight but I can remember exactly what I was like at nine and a half because we moved house and I was very miserable we moved from a, a village in Surrey where I was a queen of the playground in fact I was known as Felicity there thinking about it and I, that's my real name although I've always been called Lissa at home and then we moved to the Midlands where not only was I the first person in history to be called Felicity apparently my very first morning in assembly Ian Gebbard yes I remember his name leaned over my shoulder and went Felicity 
to my ear all the way through the hymns. Um, but also I had the Surrey accent in the Midland school and oh, it was, you know, I was, and also my elder sister left home to go to university and I just, I don't know, I, I felt very, very miserable. Um, and the biggest solace was that there was a library within walking distance. It was five minutes away, fantastically well-stocked children's section. And I really spent about the next nine years in the library, I think. That's, you know, my, my future life uh, was shaped, really, by moving them. Did you yeah. have any of those fantastic teachers that rescued you from this? I had one very, very good English teacher, Miss Saul, um, who was one of the best teachers I've ever had and inspirational. But I think mainly my main problem wasn't with teachers, it was with fellow pupils, because I was, you know, a terrible old swat and had this huge vocabulary and, you know, never, like Stuart's father, never used a one-syllable word when I could use something that nobody else would understand. I think some of it was of my own making. I kind of pulled myself away from other people and, and, oh, I don't want to, you know, wallow in it because I I think all those years of reading and and writing have shaped my my life, you know. There was no internet. I I think if there had been, I would have been playing immersive computer games but I wasn't I was reading and I was writing endlessly when did you find your tribe uh that's very good point university really when I started uh in a comedy group you know I found people who were writing and performing but more and more as I got older actually I think I think my tribe are middle-aged women to be honest (laughs) I've got more friends now than I ever had in my life you know it's it's funny really you become comfortable in your own skin and and you don't care that you're you're not like other people as you get older. Yeah. Do you do you think that the book has dated too much now for for contemporary children? It's to interesting. Read? There's a writer called Ben Harris who I'm sorry, he's a teacher called Ben Harris, but he's also a very good writer, um, who writes a blog of children's fiction and he has read Five Children Knit to his class which I imagine is um, 10 or 11-year-olds. And he says, Personally, I've always felt that Alice, the Wind in the Willows and Peter Pan seem to observe childhood with the experience and from the distance of adulthood. But Nesbitt demonstrates time and again across her output that she simply got children and she wrote for them. And he uses another phrase, which is, she wrote into childhood. And, oh, and I think lovely. that's yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. She was there, and I think she wasn't a terribly successful writer until she started writing children's books. She she was quite a successful poet because she she turned to writing. Um, little little rundown of of Edith's life. She um, married at eighteen, already pregnant with a bit of a bounder's child because he also had somebody else pregnant at exactly the same time. He also got one of her best friends pregnant, but they absorbed Alice Oates and into the household, and Edith Nesbitt adopted that child as hers. And 13 years later, had another one and similarly adopted too. So it was um, modern or weird, depending on your take. And um, he actually, he was only 61 when he died, and then she remarried quite briefly, because she wasn't very old either when she died. But I think actually, you know, he was in his 50s, she was, she was in her 60s, but she remarried the skipper of the Woolwich Ferry. Oh, did she? Yeah, which is actually That's quite a nice, solid nice occupation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one Thomas Tucker. Oh. Yeah, but, but also she... You know, had this household obviously full of children, some of which were, because they had three between them. Um, their 15-year-old son died. Oh, Fabian. Having, yes, yeah, having I mean, his adenoids or, or, and or tonsils Yes, removed. he died under, yeah. under a general anaesthetic. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, 
so anyway, to go back to that, she, you know, she started writing to support herself and, and illustrating cards as well to sort of keep things going. Mm-hmm. But the children's books came a bit later. And in fact, um, according to everything I've read, the, the flowering of her children's writing was after the death of her son. Right. I know she had her first book published when she was 41, which incidentally is how old I was when I had my first book published as well. I just read that yesterday. Um, but yes, she, I do know some of her poetry. Did it at school? It's very, it's honest and, and pleasant. It's the kind of thing that would end up in children's anthologies. Yes. Um, but it's, it doesn't have the genius of her uh, prose at or, all. Or the wit, really. No. It's much more, Absolutely well, I'm not. going to say prosaic, which is entirely the word, wrong <laughs> word to use about a poem. But it is, yes, it's it's much more, um, I don't know, un, unflowery, it really. It is prosaic, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that's the yeah. wrong word for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, the fact that she sort of weaves in... <laughs> when I wrote this down because I thought golly you really you really have to know what you're doing if you if you write this um she says that um taking things out of a baby's eye is easier with your own wet tongue yes and this is the moment reading that and you think have I ever done that I'm not sure I have I felt exactly the same it's nothing but she's right I suppose taking yes. sand out of an eye I mean you know it's like it's like I'm afraid the best way of cutting a baby's nails to do it with your teeth oh yeah I've you done know, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> full disclosure definitely done that yes usually after suffering a scratch yes yeah, so it seems like but I think where she's great is that not only has she got this extraordinarily brilliant premise of this is what happens this is how it happens this is who can see it this is when it finishes this is the wish giver but she's also got this this voice that comes in every so often and says what would you do you know one of them cried i don't know which one it would, would you have cried you know it's a really yeah. personal take which is quite bold yes. and i can't believe she'd ever read that in a children's book i presume it was based on her reading to her own children and inserting questions as she read and then taking that voice. But yes, it is very personal. It's like she's in the room with you telling you the story. It's it's immensely satisfying and warm and, and yes, unique. And quite yeah. a few instructions to be naughty, which is always <laughs> a good thing to put into a book. I love that thing about the <laughs> best way to test um, putting a, how fast the water comes out of a soda siphon is to put it into your own mouth, <laughs> you know, and probably best to do it outdoors. And, you know, I thought, wow, that's just... You know, I'm, I'm sure that when Ben, the teacher, is reading, to them, they're still laughing at that. They they right. are still, even though they probably haven't got a soda siphon between them. But yeah. the that image is so brilliant, yes. and that instruction to do it yourself is so deliciously naughty, yes. so naughty. And they have so much freedom, these kids, don't they? They um, what's noticeable about it, and I think what modern children might really enjoy is the fact that the day is theirs. You know, they do what they like, when they like, as long as they're back for meals and wash their hands beforehand. And it's fabulously freeing. Um, and that, that's the same with all her books. They just go off and do stuff. They're often home-tutored, the children in her books. It all happens during the holidays, doesn't it? Or holidays, they are, or they have lessons in the morning. Or they have lessons in the morning, yeah. Or from their mum in the railway children, of course. Yeah, because yeah, there's, there's one bit where one of the girls is irate because she's been sewing all morning and Martha still says she's got to wash her hands. Yes. And she says, ridiculous. Yes, I've been doing nothing. Yes, I've been yes. doing nothing. And then and then Enid Smith says something like, you know, but of course, you know, there are ways that you can get dirty without doing anything, but I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> It's a very deft use of magic too, isn't it? Because all too often in in children's books, magic becomes a rather twee device, which imparts some sort of 
glory to whoever it's uh, affixed to. But this one is, this is really down-to-earth magic. And there's a... <laughs> one of the boys, I mean, being roundly beaten up, then wishes he was bigger and grows to sort of giant size. <laughs> 14 and feet high. Yeah, that's, when they, that's when their marketing skills come in, <laughs> because they see a way to making money off him if they take him down to the, the gypsies again. It's the first thing they think yes. of. They, they basically sell him to a fairground for the day. It's terrible. It's both impressive and a bit, a bit worrying, I think. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. And of course, then they have to make their own way home as well because he's, he's pushed them all the way to yes. this venue. And then, of course, once he shrinks back to normal size, they're then they lumbered. They have to drag with, the cart, don't they? <laughs> with the baby cart. in it. With the it's baby in it, yeah. yeah. One thing I love, though, and, and obviously you can put whatever interpretation you like on the wishes and the children, but when they encounter someone in one of the wishes... The language that that person uses isn't quite right because it obviously comes totally from the pages of the books that they must oh, have been reading the castle at the time. One. Yeah, the yeah, castle one, yeah. and and in fact the Native American because oh, they right. they say something like you know we must get some juicy fresh caught moccasins. <laughs> and it's just not quite right. The castle one I actually found quite beautiful because Robert, when he sees the leader, you know, the soldiers who are going to lay siege to the castle, his description of him is, is almost in love with him, yeah. isn't it? It's really lovely. It's perfection. It's, it's, it's all the most romantic knightly stories he's ever read and it's in front of him and he's able to participate in it. Yes, it's lovely. It really is lovely. But of course, what's interesting is you then start realising what a siege actually means. And and the other children realise that they might die no, during no this food wish. mainly. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, that's always yes. big, the biggest issue in Nesbitt, as we know, the lack of food. It's very funny. Yeah. But yeah, I, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I hadn't really realised that 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 they are using the wishes thing as a way to play. They're playing. They're, They're playing, playing all the time. Playing. And obviously as her a child, obs- I read it as absolute fact. Her observation is so tight and her observation the detail of children's lives. And she did say, I'm a child in an adult world, mm. which then must have seemed an extraordinary thing to say. I think she was trying to make sense probably of her home life, yeah. <laughs> the weird yeah. way that she was having to live and escaping fantastically into this world she created. Mm by remembering so vividly what it was like to be a child. Yes, absolutely. There's a total recall about it, which is beautiful and impressive and is the exemplar for anybody writing fiction, children fiction, I think. And also, at sundown, it all ends, all the badness ends, and you go to bed and you've probably had a meal as well. Um, a piece here which Gore Vidal wrote about how brilliant she Good is. Lord. I know, and it's That's a really not a combo. I'd have really expected. not, yeah, yeah. really not. And actually, uh, he says she just managed to qualify magic. You know, she managed to distill it into a place where it was not so fanciful that you don't want it to to, to be in the book because it's irritating. But yet it's absolutely possible. And I think probably, he doesn't necessarily say this, but putting it into the the character of this really rather irascible little old man of a Samoyed, again, makes it so practical yes. and slightly weird. <laughs> did, did your children read it? Uh, no, no. My, uh, my children arrived when they were six. Uh, they were adopted and hadn't ever really been read to. And therefore, although they loved picture books... They never really graduated onto enjoying prose, really, because they couldn't ever leave themselves behind. They couldn't escape into something. They're always there. I mean, they're growing up now, and they, you know, they're, they're fine. But you have to be able to leave the world behind to do that. And if you're 
vigilant, if your life has always been full of the necessity to be looking around you all the time, it's very difficult to lose yourself in imagination. That's really interesting, and it also makes me think that, you know, if you do read to your children from the time they're tiny, it is concerned with that being with a parent. I mean, that's that's kind of what it is, mm. you know, from a very absolutely. young age they have absolutely no idea really what's in the book at all, but mm. that that stage of reading to your children, which actually is quite brief, as well, because yes. by the time they're any age at all, they want to do it for themselves and read to you, which takes much, much longer. But, um, <laughs> yes, that's an interesting point, isn't it? And also with these books, my children didn't read them right through the 80s and 90s when I was bringing them up. They were, let's say, bombarded with the possibility of books that they could choose themselves really easily. Whereas I think the way I came to books was to to be given a lot of them and to be or taken to the library. Yeah. It was actually much more passive. Yes. Yes, that happened to me as well. I was trying, trying to think. We didn't have, I mean, a very, very book, bookish household, but I personally didn't have that many books. And um, when I was taken to Egham Library initially, in fact, I was, remember the other day, I did love books about magic from very early on. And I remember getting a book out and it was just a plain cover, but I'd been attracted by the title and, trying to read it. I must have been seven or eight, I think. And then my older sisters, my cruel older sisters, looking at what I was trying to read, hooting with laughter, because the book I got out was called Wizard Prang and was about World War I pilots and cabbage crates over the Blighty, and I had no idea what I was, talking, what I was reading about. So, um, yes, I was always very early on. Wizard Prang would be a brilliant character name, though, wouldn't Prang, it? Yes. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. No, I bet not. Now, I'll tell you a little funny fact here, because yeah, I, I thought that was extraordinary. She had these two adopted children, uh, Rosamond and John, and Rosamond, when she was in her late teens, tried to elope with H.G. Wells... <laughs> Oh, God, fact out of a Wells, who didn't he attempt to get <laughs> off with for 40 years? Yes, totally, God, and yeah. Hubert Bland, the, the, the husband, um, who was, despite his own proclivities, uh, very moral in these ways, absolutely put a stop to that. Then when he died, age 59, he left his money to his children by Alice, the friend, not, not to his <gasps> and Edith's children. But when she died, age 65... She left her money to her own children. So I made a joke but, about wills. But not but to the adopted children? No. <gasps> no. I know. God, and when she, she kept a, a diary, which is a vivid uh, document, and um, alongside the description of her, I'm just about to get married to Hubert, she later writes in very different handwriting, deeply regretted. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, poor old Enid. I know, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Although, as you say, she was a member of the Fabian Society. She was a passionate Fabian and uh, uh, possibly had a dalliance with uh, George Bernard Shaw. I didn't know that. Yeah. Not somebody one would think of. (laughs) Instantly fanciable, I have to say. Maybe she didn't meet that many people. (laughs) But yes, different times. Although I always think of them writing away and, of course, probably... I'm guessing that uh, she hand wrote them. I mean, she was in an era of typewriters, but and I'll, I'm always terribly impressed because I, I personally do so much rewriting of what I do that, that, that pe- those people who write books by hand, I always find that absolutely extraordinary. Are they rewriting as they go along? Do they, do they then take hours rewriting it afterwards? How, how 
how do they do it? Well, there are still some people who, who are handwrite books. One being Andy Hamilton, actually, who's a, who still, I believe, handwrites all his own books he? and sketches and, and scripts, yeah. Oh, Lissa. <laughs> I kind of wanted to call you Felicity for a minute then. <laughs> Does it feel like you at all? Felicity, no. Uh, I was, it was a family one. I'm going to tell you why I'm called Lissa. And it's hugely embarrassing, but Lissa Wissa, let's all kiss her. That's me. And who, who came up with that? Super oh, sister, yeah. They've got a lot to account <laughs> for, haven't they, really? <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's been absolute, total pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing the book with me, because isn't it glorious? Oh, it's a fantastic book. It's a wonderful book, and Inez Bit is uh, he's my mentor, always. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.